Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. In a critically unwell patient, stabilisation of the cardiovascular and respiratory systems often takes precedence. However, there is an increasing body of evidence that what we do during this phase can have direct consequences for the gut. Basha Asrani is an advanced clinical dietitian in critical care and surgery at the Department of Critical Care Medicine, Nutrition and Dietetics at the Auckland City Hospital and a PhD research fellow at the Surgical and Translational Research Centre with the University of Auckland. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Australia, and we're very grateful to them for their ongoing support in making this possible. Varsha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Todd. Varsha, what's happening in the gut when there's severe circulatory shock? Yeah, so um, shock is quite a common condition in hemodynamically unstable, critically ill patients. Um, it's usually characterized by a suboptimal perfusion to most of the vital organs. Um, and alongside, this happens to the gut as well, which is subjected to lack of perfusion and splenic hypoxemia, which is lack of oxygen um, supply to the gut. Um, so usually the gut uh, needs more than, more than five times of oxygen supply um, to sort of meet the demands at the tissue level. Uh, but in circulatory shock, the blood flow um, and the oxygen delivery is compromised and there's a disbalance between the demand and the supply to the gut. Although there is um, significant protection physiologically for the gut to prevent this from happening, um, it's something that does tend to happen if, it's, if the problem sustains and eventually gut ischemia can occur. So uh, it's a very, um, although it's a rare condition, it can happen um, in many of the patients who suffer from shock. How common is this as a problem in terms of a uh, physiological or a pathological outcome from uh, uh, hypoperfusion? How often do we see it in ICU patients? Yeah, so in, I would say it's a very rare occurrence. Um, anywhere between 0.3 to 1% uh, is what has been reported in the literature all throughout. But I think in my practice of, of late, we have been actually seeing more common cases. And I just wonder because it's, is it the complexity of the patient and how, um, how unwell they are? Uh, but in general, um, it, it's, it's a rare condition, but its mortality rate is quite high. And, and obviously if a patient does end up having gut ischemia, the risk of mortality can go anywhere between 50 to 80%, which is quite significant. Um, so it's uh, the other thing is that it it does in 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 critical illness its index of suspicion is quite um, high and it's very hard to actually um, diagnose it from the early you know from the early um, phase uh, just because the way it is the way the condition is it's quite it's it's in the gut and obviously the gut in the literature has been described as a black box so it's very hard to sort of um, know early on that this is going to occur or it has occurred um, and um, yeah so I think it's a rare condition but it's it's hard to diagnose it in the early phase yeah that's a terrific point what how do we um, monitor gut health in these patients? Um, is it uh, a case of waiting until a major ischemic event occurs and then we see things like lactate rise and, and the patient get very sick? Or are there ways that we can monitor how the patient's gut is performing? Yeah. So um, one of the things is um, acute abdominal pain is a classic sign in these patients and so is abdominal distension. But um, 
in ICU patients, because they're so they're sedated or intubated, I mean, obviously, if they're very unwell patients, they would likely be. Um, it's hard to sort of um, get any patient reported symptoms such as vomiting or pain and things like that. Whereas, um, you know, in, in, a, in a ward patient or in a less um, unwell patient, you could probably know that uh, if they reported. But in, in an ICU patient, that's the problem. So if, if a lot of it is rely, we rely on subjective signs and symptoms at the bedside. And I think that's so, sort of a more challenging situation for clinicians to be able to do that uh, and, and understand that gut ischemia might be occurring or, it, you know, it's that point where they should be actually intervening earlier than later. Um, yes, serum lactate is a very common marker in the ICU and more um, sort of you know, easily used and interpreted. But again, it's got its own limitations because it can be a number of, there can be a number of other factors that can lead to rise in serum lactate. And um, our review on gut biomarkers um, actually indicated that serum lactate can be easily, you know, it, it's sort of easily re uh, reversed by resuscitation, starvation, acidosis can also lead to serum lactate levels um, which are elevated. So it's it's sort of a little unreliable, but and in general, it might just not necessarily pinpoint lack of um, gut perfusion. Um, so yes, assessing these patients for gut ischemia is, is a challenge. Um, but in saying that, I think there is more evolving evidence around the role of specific objective biomarkers that might tell us what's happening at the gut level. I think it's just um, more work is required to explore these, particularly because, um, you know, the half-life of these biomarkers and, you know, how, at what, ex to what extent do they actually tell us about the injury um, of the gut is something we still need to investigate. Asha, what are some of the factors that might expose patients to a greater risk of gut ischemia in this, um, this critical phase? Yeah, um, in the ICU, I think there are a few things that actually put these patients on risk, um, particularly, um, I think the main thing is the critical illness itself. And I think with, with the gut being the primer of organ failure, as we have seen in the literature and we know about this, uh, it's obviously a very, um, it's a very heavily used con con concept about gut um, being the motor of organ failure. Um, to some extent, um, it's quite um, true, particularly because critical illness can drive gut failure, but also vice versa. Uh, considering if the gut has, um, if gut failure occurs, then it can drive or worsen critical illness. So I think sometimes it's a two-way two -way straight. But in addition to that, there are secondary factors that might contribute to gut failure as well. And what we commonly see is that patients who are unwell, obviously the severity of illness, but also the, um, the um, escalation of therapies that they have in ICU, for example, the use of uh, vasopressors and inotropes, um, fluid, um, uh, fluid resuscitation, whether it's uh, inadequate or um, excessive, both have an impact. And also um, very recently, the use of um, aggressive feeding or um, target feeding in the early phase of um, hemodynamic instability has been a known factor to contribute to um, gut failure and other metabolic problems as well. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned there is the uh, the hemodynamic resuscitation of the patient, including yeah. fluids and inotrope slash vasoconstrictor support. How do these things intersect and how do they affect gut function? Yeah, so um, with inotropes, I think uh, one of the 
um, issues that is it, it's obviously the first line of treatment for survival and you know in patients where you know um, survival of um, life is dependent on vital organs we tend to uh, you know obviously prioritize it first but in 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 during that process I think what happens is we tend to sort of neglect the gut if you can if I can say that or or it's sort of a very um, it, it's just the way it is and how, how the gut is sort of being um, disregarded over time and escalation of vasopressors can actually contribute to that. Um, a lot of it depends on what type of vasopressor, the dose, how quickly they have been escalated and also the, um, uh, I guess, you know, how, how long the, these patients have been on vasopressors as well. Um, I think with fluid, it's whether the patient has got suboptimal fluid when they actually needed to be resuscitated and that can contribute to um, lack of perfusion. Whereas I think in a lot of patients, we also tend to overload um, them with fluid as well, which can contribute to bowel edema and then um, sort of abdominal, um, increase in abdominal pressure and distension and uh, so on and so forth. So I think, um, I think finding the right balance is really important. And, you know, it's it's easier said than done because, you know, when you're trying to um, manage a patient's um, critical illness, uh, you, you know, at a certain point in time or trying to manage their hemodynamic stability, it's just hard to make those decisions. Um, but I think just being mindful about how we can um, balance them to be able to minimize gut injury would be really relevant, I think. And I think uh, very recently in my practice, um, I've also been highlighting this to clinicians that, you know, if a patient is in shock or in circulatory failure, don't be, ru don't be rushed to start feeding them um, early on, uh, because that might actually do more harm than benefit um, you know, what it's, to what it's meant to be. So I think just being very cautious about what their blood levels are, what their, um, what the patient is looking like and um you know are we are we um you know kind of rushing into sort of protocol based um decisions you know so just being having that little more clinical um sort of um judgment over the situation and just giving stepping back and just giving it a bit more thought would be very useful particularly particularly from um how we um feeding patients how we providing uh, you know giving vasopressors or fluid as well just being more mindful about that Asha, we often hear that certain inotropic or vasoconstrictor agents are better or worse for splenic perfusion. What's the current understanding of the best agents in this circumstance? Yeah, that's a very, very tricky question because I think we've been um, undertaking a review on that and it just seems like there's a lot of mixed evidence around that. Yes, there are certain ones that we use more often in the intensive care, for example, noradrenaline, which is obviously the first line of vasopressor therapy, but is also, um, uh, I think it, it does tend to, um, you know, have a significant impact on gut injury, especially in higher doses. But there have been um, a um, a particular vasoanotrope which have probably been less used like topexamine and things like that which have probably seemed to be um, which seem to be a little more um, less um, pro, you know sort of add to less gut injury uh, but obviously the common ones like the anotropes and I think it's, it's also a combination of the vasopressors that we use particularly in patients who have low cardiac output and things I think that does you know, definitely put the patient at risk. So I wouldn't um, particularly say that any one is um, better than the other, but it also depends on the dose and it also depends on how unwell the patient is. So I guess, you know, I guess it would be very um, 
uh, silly to say that we should not be using it because we do need to use it for survival for pet patients um, um, treatment and uh, management. But I think in saying that we just might need to be more cautious about how we administrating it or how we um, changing the management. And if we are changing the management, are we being mindful about other um, physiological aspects that we should be looking into? So are we actually monitoring um, the lactate and are we actually monitoring other uh, abdominal signs that might tell us something more? So there's no particular vasopressor that might be good or bad, but um, I think there have been some that have been less explored than the others. And I don't think it's probably more of uh, what, what is more used in a particular country. Um, and there might be other countries that might be using it more. So there's some evidence to show that uh, dopexamine is probably a better uh, option, um, but it's not very commonly used. And um, I, I haven't seen much used in our intensive care unit or others as well. Vasha, one of the, the clear implications of all of this is around when to introduce feeding. Um, it's clear that, um, that uh, introducing feeding early on may increase the oxygen consumption of the gut and expose it to risk, but there's also potential benefits of early feeding. Can you help us understand where the balance lies and what the recommendations are currently? Yeah, that's a very um, important question, I think. In the last... Um, probably a few years or maybe about half a decade, there's been no more emphasis on how um, hypocaloric feeding or, you know, sort of uh, underfeeding patients is much beneficial. And I think the concept of um, autophagy, which is more theoretical, has been introduced in the literature where the body goes through a housekeeping mechanism after a severe insult or critical illness injury. And I think that probably highlights that if the body is not allowed to do this housekeeping mechanism, then obviously overfeeding or targeted feeding at this point in time can add to more metabolic derangements and even um, contribute to organ failure. And I think a lot of that um, emphasis around gut failure might be slightly linked to that because I think aggressive feeding, as we classify as probably you know, in the literature's um, term, as target feeding or overfeeding, as we say. When we introduce overfeeding in the early phase of critical illness, obviously it can contribute to metabolic derangements such as increased insulin requirement and more, um, you know, hyperglycemia, which is um, definitely uh, a problem to manage. But also other than that, it might prevent the body from its own housekeeping processes. And then at the same time, that might also add to gut injury, contributing to organ failure. And I think this has um, sort of evolved over the last few years where there's been more um, emphasis now that we don't need to overfeed patients in the early phase. And at the same time, in saying that, uh, we can't completely disregard enteral feeding because there is um, there is enough evidence to say that enteral feeding is beneficial just from a gut viability point of view and also preventing bacterial um, overgrowth and translocation uh, and also minimizing feeding intolerance in the early phase. So um, I think that balance has to be very um, sort of uh, taken care of in, you know, in these very unstable patients. So what we tend to do is we tend to trophic feed these patients. We give them 10 or 20 mils of feed to just make sure that the gut is viable, is being protected, you know, we're getting the benefit of feeding, um, protection from feed, and also minimizing any damage that can be done in that early phase. 
till the time, till such time that the patient is completely stable and um, all the perfusion has been taken care of, resuscitation has been completed, which is extremely important. And the patient has had a normal lactate and also just um, generally good um, perfusion in the extremities and things like that. So I think it's just keeping that um, balance right, but also not completely disregarding enteral feeding. Um, I think a lot of ICUs tend to focus on the day um, four to seven now with the evidence being um, sort of in guidelines and things, which is suggest that you can wait up to day um, four, between four and seven. And I think people, there's a lot of um, seriousness around that where we just wait till day seven and we're not too worried about feeding. So I think we just have to be mindful that it says between day three to seven or four to seven, which means you can still go up to full rate if the patient is stable well, and you can try and fully feed them um, in that first, um, in the first three or four days, but you don't necessarily need to wait till day seven. And, and I think if you're really concerned about the patient unlikely to tolerate feeding beyond that, then I think introducing supplemental pain would be useful at that point in time. So um, yeah, we just need to be um, making sure that we are constantly thinking about feeding while we are trying to address the um, the key problems in, in the patient. And finally, Varsha, one of the questions that continues to come up is the role of feeding in uh, anastomotic healing. Can you tell us what the latest literature is talking about in that regard? Yeah, so, and um, yes, th there is um, definitely some um, work that's been done around that. And as I said, that, you know, early feeding can protect gut viability by which it tends to um, uh, Im improve and increase healing of around anastomotic leaks, uh, around anastomotic um, sites, particularly preventing further leaks. Um, and I think one of the, um, some of the experimental evidence, particularly in animal studies, has suggested that there is an improved in anastomotic pressure and, um, you know, also hydroxyproline uh, sort of generation, which actually protects anastomotic leaks um, and improves healing and um, um, I think prevents any further complications. In fact, um, we uh, our systematic review and meta-analysis suggested that enteral feeding compared to pain or nil by mouth um, actually improved, uh, had, had lesser evidence of anastomotic leaks in patients who are uh, post-operative. So I think I think there is um, good evidence to support that. Um, I think it's hard to sort of ascertain that in in the human in human subjects, but animal studies have suggested um, there is reasonable evidence to suggest that uh, enteral feeding has benefits. And I think um, there should be an emphasis to feed patients early if they're well enough and stable, while if they are unstable and Pretty, pretty complex, then we should just kind of focus on how we can um, provide some trophic feeding to get enough benefits for the gut. Um, and of course, in post-surgical patients, there might be a phase where they are very fragile and you might need to switch to parental nutrition, which is absolutely okay. But I think just having the thought around constantly thinking about when we're going to introduce enteral feeding, even if it was just trophic, uh, should be, you know, should always be discussed and sort of um, considered at every time point. Um, our, our ICU protocol does suggest that even if a patient is on parental nutrition, just discussing the eligibility for introducing enteral nutrition um, should be done every day on a daily basis at the round. And uh, that is what we practice. So I think it just, um, it just um, sort of makes people think a little bit more about enteral feeding and it just kind of does, it's not put to the side. Yeah. 
Marsha, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and highlighting this important issue. If nothing else, it will encourage clinicians to to consider carefully their options uh, when they're resuscitating these critically ill patients. Thank you so much for having me on board. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.